You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. This is your access to world-class accounting leaders, global influencers and thought leaders. Discover what makes accounting firms great and accounting professionals world-class. Sponsored by Dext. Make the businesses you advise more productive, profitable and powerful with better data and insights. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a special edition of the AI podcast. Now, normally you'll be hearing from Rob Brown. You haven't heard from me for a long time, but this is a special occasion. We have a edition of the podcast here that looks at accounting for creativity. What happens when creative professionals enter the music scene, the entertainment scene, the showbiz scene, and they're suddenly thrust into a world where the finances are important, but it's all brand new to them. This is a new angle that we haven't taken on previously, and I'm delighted, absolutely, genuinely delighted to welcome my guest for this show, which is the guitarist, Gordon King. And if you are around about my age, you'll know Gordon from the world of Twist. And if you're particularly hit, you might know him from the bands Earl Brutus, Pre-New, or his latest project, Quatermass 3. Welcome to the show, and thank you very much for, for coming on to it. It's my pleasure. Nice to be here, Martin. So I want to assume that our listenership is not familiar with your story and not familiar with the incredible journey and adventure that the world of Twist went on. I will declare my hand now to full transparency that I'm a fan, and that's so I'm biased in this story. But I wonder if you could start us off, Gordon, just by giving us some context and painting a sort of a backdrop for us. Who were the World of Twist? So World of Twist were a band formed by Jim Fry and me in Sheffield in 1983. And we'd moved to Sheffield as we were very into the music that was coming out of the city. Groups like the Human League, Cabaret Voltaire, yeah. Clock DVA. World of Twist were never really taken that seriously in Sheffield. So we split up and all left the city in 1986 and three of us returned to Manchester where we'd originated from and that's when we got the world twist together that had some success so this will be around 1987 we didn't do any gigs but there was a bit of a buzz about us because our demos had been passed around and they were pretty good we played our first gig in February 1990 and by June that year we'd been signed up to a major label sort of partly off the back of the Manchester thing, which your listeners may be familiar with, were groups like the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays. But we were also, we a lot of people were tipping us for the top in Manchester. We got there on merit, but also partly because of the Manchester thing. We released a few singles and an album, and we came very close to breaking into the charts in the UK. But sadly, our professional career lasted less than 18 months and by February 1992, we'd finished. But there's still a lot of interest in the band and we get name checked from time to time by the likes of the Gallagher brothers. So 
yeah, that doesn't really tell the whole story. But if it's whetted your appetite, I've written a book about the band called When Does the Mind Bending Start, which was published by Nine Eight, Nine Eight Books in 2022. And it's coming out on paperback in October this year. And that book, by the way, guys, that book, which I have both a hard copy of and the audible version of, I think I'm now on my sixth way through. I would be as a fan, but it is packed with stories that are absolutely fantastic. And I would recommend that regardless of whether you knew the band or not. So given that our podcast here looks at the support or lack of support that people in business get from their accountants and their accounting firms, their finance professionals, that's really the sort of the, the gist of our show. When it came to World of Twist starting to break through, you got your record contract. Singles were coming out. Storm was the first single, I think. I hope I'm right in saying that. It's supposed right. to be fun. Yeah. Uh, I should know this. So when that came out, when the band first came together and knew that it was going to get its push into the charts and knew that it was going to get its exposure, it was no longer a, a band that was on the scene, but it was now a focus of a record company's efforts. When the band came together, was there ever any discussions between the band members as to who was going to handle money or how it was going to be apportioned out to the band members? Was there any sort of agreements that came together? How did that all work? It's a good question. None of us were particularly business-minded. I think I think it probably counts for most kind of young people who are getting a band together. And I should point out that when we got together, by the time we got some success or we got a record deal, we weren't particularly old, we, sorry, particularly young. We We were all kind of... 27 28 so this most bands are in this situation when you get your first record deal probably when they're five years younger and you're even more wide-eyed than we were and the fact is that no you don't think about those things because suddenly you're doing something you've always dreamed of doing and okay, in the back of your head, you've got the idea that there might be a way, there might be some money in it at some point, but it's just the thrill of being in this situation. So uh, I guess you are quite vulnerable. And, and now we had, our manager was a good friend of ours. So uh, we thought, and we left him in charge of the finances and uh, with an idea that we probably wouldn't get ripped off. But and I don't think we did, we ever did. But but I think there's a lot of naivety and with groups when they first sign up because suddenly you're in a situation where you don't really have to think about who's paying for. You go on tour, who's going to pay for the van? Who's going to pay for the driver? Who's going to pay for the rehearsal room? All things that were a major concern, sort of twelve months earlier, when you'd all have to pool your resources to pay for things. But now, of course, they're all being paid for. And I think it's the whole thing so exciting that you just think, oh, brilliant, that's what it is. But I guess everyone's quite trusting and, like I said, vul quite vulnerable to being taken advantage of. I would agree with both of those, yeah. Because as you say, you're doing it for the love of it. You're finally making your breakthrough. I'm guessing if nobody's business-minded in the band, then that's for the very last thing they're thinking of. You mentioned that the manager was a friend, so everyone had trust for the manager. Did the manager ever explain to the band members what was going on or when you were going to see some money or how it was going to be divvied up or anything like that? Yeah. I'm sure he did, but we, I wouldn't have been listening. It was <laughs> there, there must have been some ledger somewhere. In fact, I'm sure. I think everything was explained to you when you get a record deal. You meet the manager, you meet the company, and you get these contracts and you read through it. But 
it's like a business contract and you see the numbers and you don't see anything else and you leave it to the the lawyer that you paid a huge amount of money for to tell you if it's a good deal or it's not a good deal. And I don't think from that point of view, we never got ripped off. We got a good deal. We got a reasonable or a generous advance from the record company. Nobody ever came back to us and said, this isn't very good. You have you, There's lots of stories in the music business, particularly famous one is the Stone Roses that were basically meant that every record they sold, they owed the company. It was that bad. And it was a sort of legendary bad deal. I don't know how that happened for them, but when we knew we were going to get a record deal, we pretty much as all the Manchester bands, we were all using the same lawyer. So from that point of view, we knew we were going to have a reasonable deal. And I think when we signed a publishing deal, it was the same. But how you spent that, how you allocated that money, which was obviously down to the band and the management, then, yeah, I think we, we put our trust in our manager. Contractually, famously, there was the Smiths dispute uh, for when Mike Joyce took Morrissey Marr to court. Yeah. Uh, and the reason for doing so is that contractually, the Smiths were Morrissey and Marr, not mm. four of them. Yeah. Contractually, were they able to twist the whole band or was it yourself and Tony or who was it? Who was the band contractually? No, it was Tony and myself. It was right. sort of, uh, the songwriting was Ogden and King. Yes. There was five of us in the group. Um, yes. Uh, but yeah, there was only two of us who wrote. That was understood from the beginning. I think I, I think it was. But I, as we would have, if we had have had some success, if we'd have taken off, then it would have it may have become a problem. But it certainly wasn't a problem in the early days because Tony and myself wrote together, and the other guys were never there. So whereas in a situation like the Smiths, I'll explain that the world of Twist used to use sequences. And keyboards, very. It was very in the, in its infancy then, but we used kind of digital workstations and stuff. It was all a bit gas powered, but but yes, we wrote all our music round at Tony's mom's house in his yeah. in back back room, and so there was no bands like the Smiths would have jammed together, or you'd have assumed they did. And I think the argument there was that Johnny Marr had written the music, and Morrissey had written that written the vocals and the melodies but the actual thing came together in the rehearsal room when the bass guitarist and the drummer were putting their input into the songs and they were growing out of that and they might not have been the same songs had those two not been involved i think that's much more difficult it was very easy for us just to say tony and i wrote everything even though that was not the case i'll come on to that but tony wrote a lot more of the music than i did and I think further down the line, that would have become a problem between us had we become successful. So, Gordon, when the first single, which was The Storm, came out, and then it was followed up by Sons of the Stage, as I recall, the second single, at this point, presumably, the band were starting to see royalties from, from single sales, or was that just not a thing yet, and you had to wait a lot longer for that to come through? No, that wouldn't have happened for quite a while because when you sign a record deal, they, depending on what the size of the record deal, but you are advanced money against future sales. Right. So you have to recoup 
or the, or the record company has to recoup on what they've advanced to you before you start earning any money. With World of Twist, we got a major deal, which is very different from a deal that a group might get with an independent company, which is the figures are much smaller. And actually, probably the groups start seeing the sales royalties sooner because they haven't been advanced so much money. But in our case, I can't give you the figures. It would have been some time, probably if we'd have had some major success, I don't think we'd have started seeing royalties from those record sales for probably about 18 months. So given the advance that came through from the deal, was that used for just simply funding the band's operations? Did any of you see that as, did the manager give the band allowances to live off each week? How was the advance used for the band's financial well-being? Yeah, so immediately all the members of the band were on a kind of monthly wage, which wouldn't have been huge, but it probably was more money than we were getting before. Then money would have been allocated to rehearsal rooms. I think we put money aside for equipment. We bought a lot of new equipment. We put money aside. We bought clothes and things like that. So there was money to for that. The rehearsal room is another major thing. And we, we weren't particularly careful with our money. We tended to, whereas I know a lot of our contemporaries were much more careful with their money, but yeah, we tended to waste it quite a lot. So we had a huge rehearsal room below Piccadilly Station in Manchester in, yeah. the, in the railway arches, which was criminally underused. But And also we ploughed a lot of the money we got from the record company into our stage show much more so than most groups of our sort of stature would have done so where most groups would have hired lights when they went on tour and we didn't we went out and spent money on them and we bought backdrops and we bought projection screens so we were quite profligate in that respect but i think that was the excitement of it not being 10, month, 10 months earlier, we'd have done a show and we'd have wanted to do this and do that and put screens in and all this, all sorts of things. Of course, we couldn't afford it. Now we could. And that was the excitement for us. We, so we didn't think, OK, if we don't do that, then we're going to have another £50 a week in our pay pocket. We would have rather spent the money on the rubbish. Road of Twist for an extremely visual band that put a that's, huge that's, amount. That's, it was not some people on a stage playing their instruments. It was very much a visual feast or extravaganza. And I think for the follow-up question to that that I wanted to ask about is that, okay, so the advance, a lot of the advance was spent in whatever way. Whether it was the manager or whether it was anybody else, were the band members ever given any advice on how to handle the wage that they were on? All right, lads. You're getting this much now. Don't forget to put this much away for tax. Don't forget to do this or make sure that you've got enough for this. Was there ever any sort of guidance for what you did with your wage? So when you sign a record deal, you are signing up to a company. It might be an independent company or it might be a major company, but they are going to put your records out, your recorded output. And I am talking 30 years ago, so the language of now is probably slightly different because you have downloads and all those sort of considerations. But 
back in the 90s, which is when I, or the early 90s, when I'm talking about a record company would release albums, a 12 inch album, they'd release a CD, they'd release a cassette and probably two 12 inch singles. And they would have a, a schedule of releases, like there might be three singles a year and then there'd be an album. And you would be given a, you would be advanced a certain amount of money. Now, let's say it would be £50,000. And with that £50,000 for the year or for the term of the advance, the first term, which leads, which I think ended about three months after your album came out. Okay. 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 So for that period, you'd be advanced some money, which would pay you, pay whoever was involved in the band a wage will pay your management, it will pay your rehearsal rooms, it pay for your equipment. If you went on tour, the record company would also give you what was called tour support. So they would pay money towards your transport, your gigs, your lighting and all that kind of thing. Now, publishing is a royal... It, when you're a writer, uh, and Tony Ogden and myself were the writers in World of Twist. Yes. So when you're a writer, you can actually hang on to your own publishing so this is the money that you would be paid, the or the royalties you would be paid for the songs when the, when they are released. So if you take the Beatles, they retained their own, which is probably why they became so rich. But they retained their own publishing. They yes. they, they opened their own company called Northern Songs. So they were paying money to nobody. Nobody advanced them a huge amount of money for for the Lennon and McCartney songs. But what most groups do is if you've got a record deal or if you're something up and coming and somebody's heard of you and you're a songwriter, then you will be approached by a publishing company and that might be Sony or it might be Warner Chapel or BMG and they pay the songwriter an advance in a similar way to the record company, but it's your money. And that will be... And so in a situation like World of Twist, there was two of us who wrote, so we got the publishing deal now if we'd have been absolutely lovely people we could have divvied that up between all the other people in the band but we were youngish and didn't do that so one of the problems with most kind of groups and most particularly most young groups is if you have a situation where say two members of the band or three members of the band or one member of the band has got themselves a publishing deal when the royalties start coming in for the sales of the record, the people with the publishing deal are going to be making 10 times more than the rest of the band. Yes. So if you think of it like the Beatles, then obviously Lennon and McCartney got most of the money. Every now and again, George Harrison got a song on there and was obviously always trying to push. Being the most money-orientated member of the Beatles, he was trying to get his songs in there. Yes. All the time, so that that must have been a must have been a major bone of contention. But I, I think of a band like Madness, for instance, who had hundreds of hits, and from the point of view of the public, they were very much a band. You saw them as a kind of you did think this was a very equitable kind of organisation, an ensemble, and, almost. Yeah, and actually, they were a band. They rehearsed. It was all very organic. They must have had all had an input in the songs but the royalties were split the singer or always the keyboard player Mike Barson but the way the songs was were split up they obviously didn't have a a, a publishing 
that covered the whole band, the members of the band. Yes. Now, in some cases, you might, if you're making a huge amount of money, the drummer might think, that's fair enough. I actually never did write any songs. Yeah. But in most cases, when you form from the egg and, you, and you're a band who've been re- re- playing together in a rehearsal room, obviously the drummer is fundamental in the creation of a song. Yes. Now, even if the, the song has, has evolved from something that the guitarist was strumming in his bedroom, it's actually the whole unit that brings it together and, and makes it a song. So one of the one of the major problems, and I would recommend to any group who got to, who got together, any young group, irrespective of who really does the bulk of the writing, I would say always do a four a four way or a five way split on the songwriting. I think it's cool. If you don't want to fall out five years down the line. It's it, it. I would imagine most arguments and most splits with bands evolve because of that, because some members saying, hang on a minute, 10 years later, saying, hang on a minute, I was involved in that. I wrote a lot of this. And you can't, and of course you can't prove it. And by the time you've all stopped speaking to each other and you end up in court, then obviously you can't prove it. There's a couple of things that come to mind with this one. Two very famous examples. You two, I think, as I recall, decided that band revenue was going to be split 20% between the four members, 20% each, and the, and the 20% went to the manager. So everybody, so you two is yeah. essentially a five-member band, even though there's only four of them. Hmm. The manager being the fifth member, but they're all on equal money, so no one's fighting for a greater hmm. share of pie hmm. because it doesn't matter who writes what, they're all getting paid the same. So that wasn't very equitable of them. And as, as also I remember a dispute between the songwriters of Take On Me, a Haas breakthrough single listener like me the riff the keyboard riff which i'm sure our listeners are very familiar with is everything it's the thing that actually identifies the song but the main songwriter saw it as table dressing behind the chord structure that he put in place and the lyrics he'd written for the song so he saw it that he wrote take on me the keyboardist said that the keyboard riff the song wouldn't be as it is so mm-hmm. i'm largely responsible for it and that was a cause of a fallout as i recall because the two band members there couldn't agree on what it was that was critical to the song's identity and therefore who was responsible for it. You know, so whether you had got any advice on how to handle the wage that you've got when the, when the band was put on a wage, as it were, by the manager. So were you ever spoken to about hold this much back for this or make sure you've got some left over or make sure you invest some in case the band doesn't take off or anything like that? No, not at all. Not all. <laughs> no, that all comes back to what I was saying about you suddenly in this situation, which is, is so exciting. And it's, and I don't, I, you just, as long as it's running, you kind of, yeah. you, you don't worry about it. And I think, I, I think the whole finance thing comes maybe one year, two years, three years later when the sheen has worn off a bit. And you are starting to be a bit sensible and think about, well, hang on a minute, I've been doing this for three years maybe I could have put a deposit down on a house or something like that or a flat or something. And and you start looking into that and then you realize actually you don't have the money. And then you start thinking, hey, when we do these gigs, we sell this amount of merchandise and we've got this close to getting in the charts or we actually have got in the charts. And you think, wait a minute. Um, of the five t-shirts for sale, the merch rack, three of them have got my face on. 
exactly. Who's right? Yeah. And I think that this happens. It happens much later, and I think that is the point where people get angry and and people start falling out. So, one, were there any disagreements about money amongst the band members as you went along? I, we weren't going long enough for them for that to happen. I think. I think it would have happened later on. I think certainly because Tony and myself were in a much better financial place because of our publishing deal. I, I think people might have raised questions and said, "This isn't really fair." But no, we didn't fall out about. I think the fact we were plowing so much money back into the show. And applying money back into the band, that I think everyone was quite excited by that, and and we all had enough to live on. We all had a, enough money for a for a beer, and we, you know, if we wanted some new jeans, there was money to pay for that. You know, you're in this kind of protected bubble, yes. for a certain amount of time, and for younger bands, that is magnified greatly. Like I said, we weren't particularly young, so we we'd all been through situations like. I'd had a decent job at some point and had money. And I think we all had. Tony had a business at one point. So it wasn't like we'd all come off the dole and then it was our first taste of having some real money. And I think for a lot of young bands, it is because they've invested so much time in it. They might have, whether whether, whether they're sort of contemporaries were going out and getting jobs, they weren't. They were putting all their time into rehearsing and doing stuff for the band and then it takes off, and then suddenly in a situation where, where people are giving you money to pay to play a gig, where it is before then you were getting petrol money or nothing or whatever, and I think as that escalates, and I think it's probably why so many groups do get ripped off. I'm not saying ripped off, but they they basically don't think about money, and so they are vulnerable to people who might want to take advantage of them. Is yes. because the whole thing is so exciting. And I think that draws a parallel with the sort of subject we normally talk about on this podcast, Gordon, in that with business owners, typically they have a business doing whatever it is their business does, and they are very adept at whatever it is, whether we're talking about manufacturing or IT support or whatever it is that their specialism is. Their ability in that field is unquestioned, but their ability as a business owner is completely questioned because they are good at the technical delivery of whatever the business sells, but not necessarily the running of the business, the operation of the running mm -hmm. of the business. And therefore, so many business owners do exactly what you just described. They spend a lot of the profits plowing it back into better service, better materials, better whatever it happens to be, whatever makes the product or the end result better. And there's no one around to say, hey, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Let's stage this out. Let's think about this properly. There's no money left for you to take now, or there's no money left for the taxman now, or there's no... Our podcast makes a big point is that if only professionals who can help with that would get more involved and take more of an interest in what's mm. going on in their clients' lives and what it is they're in business for, what it is they're trying to achieve, then they can give the kind of advice that we would just get past so many potholes mm. that business owners fall into that can have very serious consequences. A mortgage defaulting there, perhaps. We're talking yeah. about a marriage defaulting there, so there are very serious consequences to that. And I'm sure in band fallouts, that's the same. And you mentioned bands being susceptible to being ripped off because they're so in the moment and in the bubble. It's where I was going next with my next question, actually, in that the band put their trust in the manager's a good friend. The band doesn't understand money that well. So we trust the manager to 
look after us, and that's great, was there anyone checking that the manager wasn't ripping the band off? I'm not suggesting for a second he was, by the way. I'm just saying, was anyone checking that? I think quite often, most young groups, your manager is older than you, but your yes. manager is, you're always, I remember Oasis when they used to talk about their manager and they were very, in a, this is now Gallagher and you think that that guy's got to be quite savvy. Yes. And, yes. But he would, he, whenever he talked about his manager, he always seemed to be quite awe, in awe of them. And Almost I think- like talking about parents. Yeah, yeah, Abso- absolutely. And I think in that respect, you are quite in awe of who is looking after you. Until the day you maybe find out they're not very good at it. You know, they're, they're not great managers. And, I, and we, obviously we never got far enough in, into the story to find out if our manager was any good. I mean, he was certainly, sadly, he's, he, he's no longer with us, but he, we, he was a lovely bloke. We loved him. He was a great friend. And I would say he was a great manager. But actually, when it came down to it, maybe he wasn't. It's interesting. When I, I, what I was just thinking about when you were talking about, do you get any advice and it was, and it's how bamboozled you are yes. from the, the whole industry. But we, like I said, we weren't young. You suddenly you're down in London and everything was based down in London at that time. And I'm not sure if that's still the case, but you'd be going into these huge offices, everything be very grand. And you were treated like royalty. They certainly knew what they were doing. The record company was great at this. You'd go in and everyone was lovely to you. And you'd go into the big, you'd go into the big sort of conference room and everyone was bringing you coffees or bringing you beers or whatever. And everybody talks to you like you're extremely important and extremely important to the future of their business. So you're thinking not only are these people making you feel good but they're also going to be working day and night to make sure that we turn into the next you too or whatever yes and I'm just investing you there saying don't lose any money by the way make sure the next thing was a great yeah. one because yeah. you're critical to us here so you need to deliver for us here i guess that's the implied subtext there yeah absolutely and it's never you never get the feeling that you're just one of the numbers which you obviously are and they are brilliant at this. They make you feel very special. And so I, I would say if there could be somebody at the beginning to just t- say, just keep a level head about this, that you are being duped to some extent. It's not that they don't want you to become massive or they don't want to sell loads of records. They've actually, this thing, this advance, all this money they've given you, it's actually a loan. You're not going to see any money until you pay the loan back. If you get into trouble in five years' time because you haven't put any tax away, that's your concern. It's a kind of smoke and mirrors thing. It's not that these people aren't trying to do their best for you, but you are a cog in a wheel. And and if if you do, if you are successful, then that treatment will carry on and it will escalate until you are abs- you are royalty to them. But you've got to remember that they're superb at their job and their job is to make you feel special you're not very questioning in that situation you don't think hang on a minute what about this what about that i am fascinated by this conversation when i'm in the interest of time i'm going to ask two more questions if i may the first of those is at any time there was four singles as i recall there was the album quality street that came out as well and at any point in the journey of the road of twist how, did the band ever set any kind of 
financial goals? Not for us. No, we never. I don't think we ever saw success in those terms. We always wanted to think we assumed that if we did sell records, if we did become successful, we'd be comfortably off. So that's a kind of given. And I've never had particularly expensive taste. I just like buying lots of CDs and having a massive stereo system. I had no goals from that point of view. And I think our main concern was that we always wanted to put the kind of show on that we couldn't afford to put on. We, we wanted to grow in that respect. We wanted to be putting a, this huge extravaganza on that we couldn't afford to put on now, but maybe in, in three years' time we would be able to. I've got a feeling that most bands are like that. I don't think I don't think musicians are particularly money orientated. I think it I think a few people are, but I don't think it comes with the territory. With the amount of savvy that exists and the amount of information that exists now online, I would imagine that artists today are thinking about the business side of it. Whether they or when they started out or not, I have no idea, but I'm sure they're, they're thinking, okay, how many streams do I need to get to earn any money here? Or is it worth doing a European tour? How many people are actually going to come out and buy tickets? I'm sure they do think in those terms now because they're a little bit more, a little bit more educated now as to the business side of the industry. Yeah, the group I'm in, and we're all, we're all in our 50s or 60s or whatever. We, 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 but we're treating the whole thing as if we were a kind of new band. Yeah. We're not like, a, we don't do, co we write original material. We're not a covers band. And hopefully we put a show on. This is Quater Mass 3 I'm talking about. Now, we're back, we're in a situation where if we want to, tour if we want to do a mini tour for instance and we want to play nottingham we want to play leeds we want to play manchester we want to play a london date maybe newcastle or whatever now we've got to factor in the cost of getting a van driver probably who's going to double as a roadie having accommodation when we get to each of those places being able to feed ourselves and refresh ourselves for kind of five or six days or how however long we're away for now to offset that we we will take merchandise with us so we got t-shirts and we got cds and things like that yes. uh, and hopefully at each gig we might make 100 pounds 150 pounds on merchandise we might we'd expect to get paid maybe 300 pounds for the show yep. now that isn't going to come anywhere near paying for if you want to call it a mini tour so it just gives you some idea how much the figures involved right. in, with a band. Now, I have no idea how people do that now because we've all got jobs. Everybody in the yes. band has, earns, has, earns a decent living doing something else. And, uh, okay, we have to take the week off that we're going on tour, so we don't, we're not being paid for that. But I just have, have a clue how a young band would pay for that. So obviously the only way you can do it is to sign up and have somebody invest or else you're getting paid more money for doing the shows you're selling more merchandise but but it's a tricky business if you're nowadays i'm back in the day i wasn't even thinking about that i just got yeah, in the van and and got drunk on the motorway and just <laughs> and arrived at the gig and played my guitar for half an hour or whatever but it's there's a lot to think of and 
they're all things you never think of when you're young. Suddenly, if you're being paid to do that, you've got a you've got someone facilitating that kind of lifestyle, then it's wow, this is brilliant. Absolutely. And I think again, there's a parallel there between that and business owners, in that they often need to have an investor or a, a business loan or some seed capital or something because the business can't stand up without it. It's yeah. going to take a while for the business to be able to stand on its own two feet and therefore they need someone somewhere to back it so they can do what it is that they need to do. Otherwise, they're going to lose money. And just before I come to the final question, and thank you very much for all the input you've given us on this. We mentioned the book, which is When Does the Mind Bending Start? I believe it comes out in paperback. It's already in hardback right now. It comes out in paperback on 9-8 books and is available from all good book sellers as well. What made you commit the story? now to to a book format after all these years what made you tell a story at this point because it's fascinating to people like me who were there at the time and who wanted to know a lot of the things that were never ever came out in interviews or any other way of finding them out but was there a renaissance of interest in the band was there a continued and maintaining interest in the band what tipped the scales for you I think there's, there's always been a lot of interest in the band and a lot of that's come from the Gallagher brothers have always mentioned us every now and again Liam Gallagher one of his groups did a cover version of one of our songs. We, we've never gone away. We've, we're, all, we're always kind of part of that Manchester thing and part of that early 90s thing. And people remember us. And even though we didn't have any major success, I think people always kind of say, hey, how about World of Twist? They, they put on great shows. They were. I, I think we were always a part of that. And for that, I'm really grateful. As far as the book goes, and I came completely out of the blue, 9-8 approached me and it just turned out that Pete Selby, who, who runs the imprint, it was a big fan of the band and and i think there's been a real renaissance in 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 books written by minor figures in the in the pop industry and they and there's certainly an audience for it that i'll be a very small audience but so it's nonetheless yes but there is an audience and and sometimes some of those kind of this people want to read more about the the rock and roll failures and the rock and roll successes they're slightly more interesting and a bit more down to earth, maybe. Um, but when they approached me to do it, my first instinct was, why would anyone want to read about this? It's, and it still is to, to some extent. But but it, I mean, it was it, you'd have to read the book to understand what I'm going on about. But it, it was quite an emotional experience and quite a strange experience, and it wasn't straightforward in any respect. I have read the book, and it works on three levels for me. First of all, it is what it looks like. It is a straightforward story of a band that gets its break and tries to make it in what is a hotly competitive industry full of pitfalls, and it's certainly not plain sailing. It's also, I think, it's an insight into how much creative effort goes into simply getting a single into people's hands at home at that time or an album produced and how much goes into it. You're detailing in the book, traveling in convoy out to Wales, and what was going on in that whole time you were there and the A&R man sitting, I think, with his Lexus, was he playing the Nintendo Game Boy? Wait, waiting to hear what it is you come up with. You've got that spectre outside the studio and you're trying to be creative and we need to find some tunes from somewhere. But I think this third level, and I think you're very open about this, which is wonderful, is it, it has a real emotional layer in that it, it pays a huge tribute to your songwriting partner and the lead singer, Tony Ogden. It, it does really showcase him in a very positive way and he's no longer with us but he has perhaps been underappreciated 
for a long time. And this book perhaps shines a new light on what he brought to the pop world as well. So I think it works on all those three levels. We weren't really friends. I found him a very sort of difficult person to be with. Just one of those things. I was totally in awe of him. Absolutely. He's the, I've, I don't, I've met a lot of people, but he was, he's the only genius I've ever met. He, he was really quite extraordinary. And for years, it used to, used to really wind me up when I saw pop stars who I thought weren't really his equal having success because he really would he had everything he had the looks he had the charisma but he he was a superb composer and and yeah i think if the book is trying to do anything it's trying to bring that to the people i got a lot of things off my chest and and like i said we weren't mates me and tony so it was it, it was a way of kind of just just tying up a, a lot of loose ends yes uh, but what one thing i hope it doesn't do is to put anyone off be it getting involved in the music business because I hope it would I hope it, it would inspire people rather than the other thing because I think even though it's a very difficult industry to be successful in there's something magical about it that really none of the other arts can compete with from my point of view it will send a reader who has those ambitions in with eyes far more wide open to the realities of what we're about to embark upon. Yeah. And perhaps remove a bit of that vulnerability that could have existed otherwise because of the naivety they would have had otherwise. I think it paints a very realistic picture of, of how it is to be a band that has talent, that has songs, that has something, but it takes a lot more than just the songs to get you to where you need to be. So with that in mind, let's just remind everybody that book is coming out in paperback very soon. It's called When Does the Mind Bending Start? But final question tonight for us, Bob, would be, in your honest opinion, if the band had some very structured business advice at the start, which had made the individual members quite savvy about recording, touring, publishing, about band's image, about pretty much the very marketable entity, would the world of Twist's career story be any different than it actually was, do you think? I mean, that's, it's an interesting question. And half of me wants to say, I hope not. Because, <laughs> sure. because the whole thing about being in a group should be this kind of reckless spirit that, that you, are not, you are an artist and nothing more. And you should absolutely absorb yourself totally in the art of what you're doing. But I guess the reality of it is it probably would have gone off. <laughs> it would have gone on a bit longer if we'd have had, had, had some knowledge of what was happening. It's interesting. Now I would say, yeah, God, give us, give me all the advice you can. But at the time, you just, you don't want to know about those things. It's like, in a way, you think, did Bowie know about that? Kind of, yes. Would he have been interested in that? It's always like a willful ignorance. Yeah. But it's funny because then when we're talking about individual geniuses, and I know it sounds crazy, but I would put Tony Ogden in the same boat as Bowie. But and most bands aren't. They're all they're quite naive, and they come together, and they're all they're, there's an excitability about it, and maybe that's to the detriment of having any sense. So I I, I think I certainly think it would be useful, definitely. Yeah, I think I think so too. 
on that note, Gordon, I want to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. The latest project from Gordon, which is Quatermass 3, Bands Output and its single Superstar, is available on Spotify for, and of course, all other platforms to download music. And I would recommend you check that out. And a thank you to the sponsors of the show, as always. And we will see you on the next episode. Bye for now. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. Sponsored by Dext. Make the businesses you advise more productive, profitable and powerful with better data and insights.